David Keith has some big ideas for the planet. A professor of applied physics at Harvard, David is leading a team of researchers focused on the science and public policy of solar geoengineering, a field that yields innovative ways to manipulate the environment. David and his colleagues believe that solar geoengineering can go a long way toward mitigating the effects of climate change. In this episode of the Ivy Podcast, David offers his insights on the technologies, risks, experiments, and governance associated with this field, and what is needed to save the Earth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, first of all, I want to make this pretty interactive. So I, I like to keep my talk relatively short. And from my point of view, these are most interesting when there's a real back and forth of questions. Um, maybe a few other words I should say is a um, uh, no disclaimer. We're not trying to engineer the climate. We're trying to learn more about what might happen if people did do it, about what the risks are, and about how on earth it would be governed. So. So I'm actually a faculty both in the engineering school at Harvard and in the Kennedy School of Government. So I work probably at least as much on the social science side, trying to understand what the laws might be, uh, how on earth we'd make decisions about where the planetary thermostat should get set on a divided planet. So, so I'll, I'll kind of deal with both some of the, um, the, the technical issues. <clears throat> I've got slides with numbers, but also I really want to get some of the big uh, political questions on the table about this and also some of the kind of weird ones. So let's just, first hands up. How many of you have heard of chemtrails? Yeah, so, so in having this debate, uh, there is a widely different views about whether or not uh, uh, we should actually do research on what we think of as solar geoengineering. There are you know, widely different views around the world, but quite apart from that, there's something like 25% of the US population, I'm not making that up, we have polling data that believe that the US government is already poisoning the air deliberately from airplanes. And that gives you some sense of how complicated it is to have a conversation, a serious public debate, in a world where that many people think something that strange. Um, so I'm gonna start with really some sort of basics of climate change. Um, I actually had this on. Um, so maybe I don't have this on. Um, all of you will have seen ugly pictures like that of you know, some industrial pollution belching smoke into the atmosphere. And you may have heard lots about climate change, but you may have little sense of kind of a simple way to understand what a problem it is or isn't. And I think there's a lot of different ways to talk about it, but I want to start in the most kind of basic geophysical question. So all the smoke you see is of course not carbon dioxide. That's mostly steam anyway, and there's fine particulates in there, little tiny particles in the air which contribute to killing three or six million people a year around the world. These are the air pollution. But separately from that, there's carbon dioxide. And so what you're doing when you're burning fossil fuels is moving carbon from deep underground, from the geosphere, if you like, into the active atmosphere. And you should think about um, what that's like and how big or small it is compared to a natural process. So if the industrial process is the one we all know about, you know, many of you would have driven here tonight, you gotta ask, what's the natural equivalent? So there is a natural equivalent. CO2 does move, carbon moves, from deep underground through, say, volcanoes and through seeps, where oil and gas seeps to the surface. That's how we originally found oil and gas in lots of places. Um, and you can think about what's the relative size of those two things. So the most basic way to think about climate change is how big is what humans are doing compared to what the natural background is. So I'll show you the answer in a second, but think about it. Is it are we sort of roughly as big, a tenth as big, 10 times as big? 
So the rough answer is that we're 30 times as big. And you could get 40 and get different numbers. But the answer is the rate at which humans are moving carbon from deep underground to the, to the atmosphere is something like 30 or 40 times as much as the natural background does it. So we're overwhelming it completely. And what that means is we're driving up the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere with consequences that are climate change we can talk about. So some basics about the actual flux of carbon to the atmosphere. It's huge. Each of you on average, and, and you're maybe more wealthy than average, but on average for a developed country like this, account for something like 20 tons of CO2 per person per year. So think of that as being sort of 15 cars. It's a lot. And if you could see it, we might think about it differently. But it's an invisible thing, and it's not something that's directly dangerous to people, uh, only indirectly through causing climate change. So this gives you some sense of, say, from 1960 till now, of what's happened to global carbon dioxide emissions. The last, actually, three years before this one, they were flat. And a lot of people thought that that was the peak, and that maybe um, work on energy efficiency and clean energy had um, uh, stopped the rate of CO2 rising. It's possible we're getting close to there, but in fact, this year was higher again. And my guess is we've got a, a ways to go up in emissions, even with efforts to, to, to cut emissions to substitute. And, and this slide gives you some information about uh, um, how carbon has changed since 1870. So what the, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is. So the last slide was about how much we're putting in each year. And this slide is about just the total in the atmosphere. And uh, the total in the atmosphere has gone up a lot. I'm like 400 parts per million in the atmosphere compared to 280. And almost all of that was coal, gas, and oil. So you may have heard about rainforest burning. Yeah, rainforest burns, but also rainforests regrow. And the net effect of all the change in land use was more or less zero. So the dominant effect by far is simply humans uh, uh, putting CO2 in the atmosphere. So <clears throat> this part is something we know with pretty high accuracy. So at this point, we know the carbon budget to 10, 20%, very well. The next part, the real hard part, is how much will the climate change as a consequence of CO2 in the air? How big, how, how, much does, how much does it warm up as we put CO2 in the atmosphere? That we know a lot less well, um, uh, but we have lots of reasons to believe that it's serious, and I can give you lots of sense, but I want to give you sense that kicks you way back in time. So by the end of this century, if we did nothing to slow it down, we will have, say, 1,000 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So something like a factor of three more than, than when the industrial age started. Give you a sense of that. That's happened before. So this is, this is a time trajectory over the last 50 million years. And there were periods before, something like 50 million years ago, at the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum was called, yet one second, where, where we had a CO2 of a few thousand parts per million in the atmosphere. And I'll answer in just one second. And there's nothing particularly right or wrong about having a given amount of CO2 atmosphere. But the issue is about rate of change. So if humanity does what we're doing now, we will bring CO2 back to the level that it was in the atmosphere, say, 50 million years ago, on a time scale of a human lifetime or two. Something like 100,000 times faster than it took to, to remove the CO2 after that paleocene-eocene thermal maximum. And the worry about climate change is not because we believe this is intrinsically just the right climate for the atmosphere. It's that the locations of our cities on the coast, like this one, the agricultural systems that we have have all evolved for this climate. And very rapid climate change threatens, therefore, both uh, human systems and ecosystems. Yep, sorry? Well, I was just wondering if I could ask questions now or you want to... Yeah, I'm happy to get some. I just felt like I wanted to finish that a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, I was 
mechanism by which CO2 would become lower? Um, there, there are a few. There are a bunch on different time scales. So if you put a given ton in the atmosphere right now by flying to Europe one way, um, um, there's short-term things, which is that it gets absorbed by the surface ocean. And then there's longer term, and that kind of happens on timescales of years. Then there's equilibration with the sort of main deep ocean, which is a few hundred years. And then there's a chemical equilibration with the uh, CO2 is a weak acid, and it equilibrates with the bases in the ocean. And that time scale is longer, out to 10,000 years. The most important single thing to know, beyond all that gobbledygook in a way, for public policy, is that the amount of warming is basically proportional to cumulative emissions, period. So that means if we do all the work it takes politically to shift the whole world's um, energy system from coal, oil, and gas to you know, wind and nuclear and solar, so that we go to a low carbon energy system, if we do that, all we do is stop making the problem worse. We don't make it better, we just stop making it worse. Because the amount of climate change is proportional to the cumulative emissions. And that's very different from lots of other environmental problems. So if you think about air pollution, which I mentioned at the beginning, air pollution actually is, is much more dangerous today than, than climate in some sense. But if we stopped putting the air pollutants in the air, they're gone in about a week. So that's the way in which it's very different. CO2 is this cumulative problem. And so the answer to, uh, to how long it lasts, um, there are lots of complicated answers, but the short answer is on the timescale of human decision-making, a century or two, more or less, once you put the CO2 in the atmosphere, committed to a given level of warming. Unless you do something else, which I'm going to be telling you about, or some different things. So um, this idea isn't new. Uh, actually, one second. Or, sure, go ahead. I haven't said anything about adaptation, but for sure, people will adapt, and there are efforts to uh, uh, push people to adapt by sort of government-organized adaptation. We can argue about how important they are, but there's certainly some, for sure, yes. But the, the main climate policy people have been fighting over, and we have some progress on, is really uh, 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 shifting to clean energy. And uh, we're spending 300 billion worldwide round numbers on clean energy, which you can think of as big or small. Uh, it's point percent or so of GDP. It's less than upstream oil and gas spending. Um, but it's real. It's a lot more than it was a decade ago. Um, this topic isn't new. So it's easy to think, many of you are a lot younger than me, that the climate problem has sort of been visible politically or visible scientifically for, say, a decade. But it's actually much, much older. So this is an article that says all the same stuff that you've read if you read climate articles in New York Times recently. It really isn't that different except it's from 1953. And there's, I could find articles after that. This was reporting on the first big research from the US Air Force Geophysics Lab that did the first accurate calculations of what we call radiative transfer in the atmosphere. The first major report that went to a US president that had kind of the modern version of the climate story about the accumulation of CO2 and had a rough modern calculation of how much things would change. That calculation went to President Johnson when I was two. So this has been a long problem. Um, uh, it's not something that people have just been thinking about for a decade or two. And, it, and progress has in some ways been very slow, although there really is progress now. Um, another thing to talk about is uncertainty. I could spend the whole lecture on that. I'm just going to do this one slide. But I said that the amount of warming was proportional to cumulative emissions. That's true with pretty high confidence. It's true that it's proportional, but the proportionality constant, that is, 
how much warming you get for a given amount of emissions is actually uncertain to like a factor of three. So that means that, that for the best effort of all climate scientists around the world for decades, and I've been sitting doing Fortran of climate models myself, um, we can't tell you with very high accuracy how much the climate will change. We just have to make policy in the face of that uncertainty. So there's a, a, this, uh, this is an old uh, graphic from MIT that I think nicely illustrates the fact that it's like spinning a roulette wheel for a given uh, emissions trajectory under say business as usual, you spin the roulette wheel and you're pretty likely to get very warm. If you cut emissions, you won't get quite so warm. But whichever one you do, there's substantial uncertainty. And even if we cut emissions a lot, there's still a significant chance it warms up a lot because we may be unlucky. And that uncertainty we can't make go away. It's just part of the game for climate. Yep. Yeah, so there's so this is often called a tipping point. I think um, there are lots of individual things where the impacts are nonlinear. So there are lots of cases where certain kinds of crops will only grow in certain regions of climate, and you may find some nonlinearity. There's actually, I think, not much evidence that there's some overall single threshold. So politically, many of you will have heard about the Paris Treaty commitment to 1.5 degrees C, and or 2 degrees C. Uh, I think it, it's lots of good reasons why people make treaties that have specific numbers in them, but I think it's important to say there's not a scientific consensus that there's some sharp threshold at those regions. I think the general scientific understanding is the more we put in, the more risky it gets. The risks almost certainly grow up faster than linearly, and they, they are uncertain. That's kind of the brutal summary of the science in, in short. Um, let me say something about why the policy is so hard. So, Again, for air pollution, you cut pollution and the problem goes away. It's not to say it's easy to cut pollution. I mean, the political battles that were fought, say, to, in Los Angeles to clean up smog, the political battles around the Clean Air Act, uh, uh, were no joke. The Clean Air Act implementation in this country cost close to 1% of GDP and, and had enormous benefits. I mean, people, uh, your generation is living a year and a half longer or so because of the Clean Air Act. So, so that's an, a US average. I mean, if it was at LA, it's much, much bigger delta. Uh, but the reason this is hard is that when we make policies to cut emissions, we gradually accelerate the construction of, of low carbon infrastructure, you know, building solar plants or nuclear plants, whatever you like. The emissions reductions grow with the accumulation of infrastructure, that's sort of uh, one integral. And then the concentration reductions, concentrations of the amount in the atmosphere, which is the amount of warming, uh, is a second integral. So the net effect of those two things is it's very slow. From the moment that we have serious climate policy, which I would say is not quite here yet, but it's better than it was a decade ago, to the moment that things really change, it's like a good chunk of a century. And I think part of the fundamental reason this problem is really hard public policy problem is the combination is huge inertia, like steering a super tanker kind of inertia, and the fact that it's uncertain. So it's the fact that we might have these really bad outcomes, and, and it's not like we can figure out in 2050, oh wow, we rolled the dice unlucky, we've got a really bad outcome, now we can just cut emissions. That doesn't do it, because at that point, just cutting emissions, uh, which is already hard to do, just leaves you where you are. So that was my sort of rough start introduction to climate change. And then the rest of the talk is going to be on this thing I work on mostly, solar geoengineering. But it doesn't make sense to talk about solar geoengineering without giving you some sense about the climate problem larger. So. Solar geoengineering is, is the simplest way to say it, I think, is, is it's the idea. At this point, it really is pretty much just an idea, a collection of little technologies. 
that humans could deliberately make the Earth more reflective, say adding aerosols to the stratosphere where they would reflect some sunlight. There's a bunch of other ideas too. And doing that would offset some of the risks of accumulating carbon dioxide. Won't do it all. So this cannot be a perfect fix. At best, it can be a supplement to cutting emissions, not a substitute for cutting emissions. Um, I'll now give you lots of detail, but I want you to kind of hang on those points because those are the key points. And I also want to say right up front what I think is the biggest political reason why this has been a taboo, why there is not really large-scale research. Because I'll show you some evidence in a few minutes, I think pretty strong evidence, that this, these technologies could do an amazing job of reducing real climate risks all over the world and do it at an absurdly low cost. So it is not an overstatement. Uh, to say that the ratio of, of benefits to cost could be like vaccines, like 1,000 to 1. But there are some big buts and big concerns. And the biggest of those concerns is, I think, something that's often called moral hazard, although that's not, I think, really quite the right word. I think it's more of a blunt political issue. So we in this country and in lots of countries around the world are having political battles about how much to cut emissions. And I think those battles, I mean, you can guess which side I'm on. I'd like to see emissions cut more, but it is a real battle and it's not trivial. The fact is, making rapid emissions cuts takes money from the current generation where the benefits go to future generations. There's no version of that that should be easy. So there are legitimate differences about how fast we should cut emissions. There's no magic right answer. And it's good that we're having debates. I don't think the debate in this country is that healthy. One sec. Um, so, so that battle is hard. And the political concern about solar geoengineering is that fossil-rich companies, or you know, fossil powers, Exxon, BP, Shell, whatever, or fossil-rich nations, the, you know, Russia, uh, um, the, the Gulf states, will exaggerate the way in which solar geoengineering works, overclaim about how well it works as a way to inject uncertainty into negotiations about cutting emissions to block emissions cuts. So I think the central reason why the environmental community that cares about climate change has been mixed on this topic, some supportive, some not, is political fear that it will be misused. Yep? Uh, what's the goal of having a zero? If you want to have a stable climate in the long run, you pretty much have to get to zero. I don't think that's hard. There's lots of other ways to make energy. So solar and, and nuclear is an obvious combination. So it's hard, I mean, it's one of those things that's hard to do quickly. So if you're saying, could, could we change the whole energy basis of the global economy in 10 years? That's absurdly hard. But could you change it in 50 years? That might not be so hard at all. Energy is important, but it's only sort of 5% of GDP. And the fact is, if you're, if you're changing things at a rate not much faster than capital stock turns over anyway, we definitely know how to make large quantities of carbon-free power. The issue is, there's lots of hard issues in the details, but there's no, to my mind, fundamental question that it could be done. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's no, oh, 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 the, the, yes, there's, the, right now, we use something like 15 terawatts, 15 trillion watts of, of power globally, um, and you could easily make much more than that uh, with solar covering only a couple percent of the Earth's surface or with nuclear. So there's no, there's no fundamental limit in that sense. Yep? What kind of lifestyle changes would we have to do to achieve that level of zero? Not necessarily very many, but that's the right question. So, so um, um, 
remember, we've eliminated a lot of pollutants before without making big lifestyle changes. This, this question gets to the heart of it. So um, we now drive cars that do this amazing thing. They don't put lead in the air and make us stupid. So, so, so uh, this is not a minor thing. So the lead in gasoline cut IQs in people in my generation and a little later by several points. It's possible that some of the decline in violence in the last sort of third of a century in the US is actually lead. Lead was a huge pollutant. Uh, I mean, one of the worst things we've dealt with in some respects. And, and that wasn't very expensive to get rid of. We, we um, have stopped putting in the chemicals that destroy the ozone layer through the Montreal Treaty. And at the time that Montreal Treaty was being debated in Congress, and I've, I have a friend who's sort of one of his, his, parts of his life's work was really understanding the way the politics and science of that happened. Um, uh, the electronics manufacturers came to Congress, this would be in about 1980, and said, we don't know how to make circuit boards if you ban CFCs. And they were not lying, uh, because that was the only way they could wash circuit boards at the time. Congress did ban, and, and in the end, actually, one of the leaders was Margaret Thatcher in driving a, a, a faster um, version of what was called the London Amendments, the Montreal Protocol. And in the end, the electronics manufacturers easily innovated around it. So obviously, electronics works fine today, and there's no CFCs. So, so there's lots of examples where humans have found an environmental pollutant that's, that, that seemed to be something that was hard to eliminate, and, and technological change has eliminated it. So that doesn't mean this is going to be easy, and I'm not saying it's easy, but it's clearly possible to do. So I don't think we have to have some big lifestyle change to cut emissions. But on the other hand, I think at some level, if there isn't a level of real political will to do it, it won't happen. So, so, so at least some level of lifestyle change or at least political will change is necessary. It won't just happen as a sideshow. This is an expensive thing. Oh, you mean who, who gets the who gets the right to pollute? And you know, the, the Indians get it on a per capita basis, and it's a per capita average over the century. Or yeah, I think that logic has some credibility. I don't think there's any single right answer. I think yeah, I mean, it's it, this is a hard political fight. There's no no easy right answer, but that's certainly that that that's a point of view that has some weight. <laughs> Not in a world with nuclear weapons, in a simple way. Um, so so. This is this idea. This idea is also old. So uh, this is the only, I'm gonna show you one more of these things. This is that, that same President Johnson report. And so this idea was around in 1965. This idea that's now so radical uh, uh, that it's just popping up now. Um, but what happened is it was there in all the early climate reports. And then as climate got very visible and political, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, more or less the kind of uh, uh, science and public policy establishment that worked on climate said that we should not think about this solar geoengineering idea. It wasn't called that then, the names have changed. Um, and then in the last roughly half decade, it's become more visible. So to give you some sort of sense of where things are now, there's now lots of dispute, lots of talk about this, but there's certainly talk of this up to heads of state in some cases. Uh, there's there's you know, a significant amount of research around the world, at least in a small scale, in a way that there wasn't just a few years ago. Yep. Mm 
That's, that's great that you're reading that. No, it isn't that fast. There's still a chance that it could be that fast. And actually, sea level rise is from Antarctica is still one of the things that's hardest to figure out. So if you look at the projections for the next century, there's huge uncertainties. And of course, it depends on how much we warm it up. Yep. That's a great question. So, so how, how much could climate change impact New England in 50 years? So one answer is I think you don't get that much sea level rise. So sea level rise really gets, if it gets bad at all, and I think there's a significant risk it does, it's more in the century after that. So then you can easily get meters, and that removes this city, more or less. But in 50 years, it's very hard to get enough to change things that much. You will get significantly warmer summers, and higher peak temperatures, and those things have real impacts. They kill people, they reduce productivity, et cetera. And you will get more intense storms. Those are maybe two examples. Um, and two examples I think we can say with some confidence. Um, so I want to go ahead a little bit. Um, let me hmm, think of what I most want to say. Let me say why. So, so here, here's the basic idea. How would we do it? So, so the basic idea is to add aerosols, which are little uh, uh, droplets of liquid or, or dust to the atmosphere that would reflect away from sunlight. And I'm going to claim that this can be done at an absurdly low price. Something of order a few billion dollars a year could stop the entire world warming. And you should be skeptical. And, and I'm going to give you a little, the little part of this is a science lesson to say why aerosols might be particularly kind of high leverage to alter the Earth's climate. So, so um, let's say you wanted to offset the whole radiative forcing of doubling CO2 in the atmosphere. So you've got doubling CO2 in the atmosphere, and you want to do something, reflect enough sunlight, to bring global temperatures back to where they were before you doubled CO2. It turns out you need to, by coincidence, reflect away about 2% of the Earth's sunlight. So that means you need a um, meter, which covers about 2% of the Earth, more or less. And so you know, one way to do that would be to cover this thing with mylar foil. And that, the numbers are right. So the, this is 2% of the Earth. It's about 10 million square kilometers. And so you could say, OK, I'm going to cover it with mylar foil. What would that cost? So it's just, just, just an order of magnitude calculations to give you a sense of what's hard and easy. So if you want to cover the US with mylar foil, you, know, you go look up how thick mylar foil is, like 25 microns thick. So it needs like 700 million tons of mylar foil. And, and maybe it lasts a year because it degrades on the ground. So you've got to make maybe you know, several hundred million tons a year of, of mylar. And that's like more than the world's plastic production. This is real. I mean, aside from obviously the lunacy of covering the US, it actually would be physically, economically hard to do. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm, I'm just I'm trying to be <laughs> clear about it. But, but the, the key trick is that a little droplet or a little dust particle of an aerosol is a much more efficient scatterer than micron foil, and it lasts longer up in the upper atmosphere. And the real little part of this that is, is a fun science experiment. So you've all seen clouds like this. And you've seen clouds appear out of blue sky. How the heck can that be true? The cloud that appears out of blue sky has the same amount of water vapor for some kinds of clouds as the sky did before it. And if you took all the water vapor in that cloud and gathered it together in a ball, you just have a ball of water, which would fall, and it wouldn't be white and reflect. And if you have all that water as vapor, it wouldn't be wide and reflect. 
So the same amount of water vapor, if you gather together in little tiny droplets, is much more reflective than if you gather together in one big swimming pool or you have it as a vapor. And the lesson is that reflecting sunlight has a lot to do with the way you organize stuff. And if you organize into the little droplets that are about as big as the wavelength of light, it's a really effective reflector. And that's why clouds do appear like that out of a blue sky. So you have to make really small, dro small droplets. Droplets, so if that's a human hair, you make droplets that are about half a micron in size. But, but nature does that and we can do it. We do do it as pollution already. And um, these half micron particles act like little mirrors. And so back to the same thing. If you want to put calcium carbonate or uh, sulfur or other things we've thought about into the stratosphere, and you wanted to do that same 2% of the Earth's area, you only need to put something like 5 or 10 million tons a year into the stratosphere. And that's not hard. So it turns out that the cost, if you just go and look at, um, go to people who build commercial aircraft and ask them how hard it would be to put, say, 5 or 10 million tons a year in the stratosphere, that turns out to be off-the-shelf commercial technology. Bombardier or Embraer or Boeing or Airbus can easily design aircraft that do this. And we're not talking through our hats. We've talked to these companies. And, and uh, uh, the overall cost of doing that is not a lot more than it is to ship materials across the Pacific, which is about a buck a kilo. Maybe it's two bucks a kilo to go to the stratosphere, but it's not way more. So you do the math, and you get this ridiculously small number. This is not an argument this is a good idea or the best way to do it. It's just a brutal argument about the fact that there's high leverage and it's cheap to do. Yep? Um, depends how you do it, but the short answer is very little. So you might get sunsets that look a little different. Uh, one of my colleagues at Harvard and I had begun to wonder about one potential bad income would be it could uh, make the night sky in very dark places, slightly less dark. It basically makes city lights propagate a little further for those of you who worry about night sky pollution. There, but, but depending on how much you do, a pretty tiny change, but not zero. Yep? <laughs> All sorts of things. Let's get the, uh, we'll get the politics in a second, uh, um, uh, like in five minutes. What I first want to do is, is say, 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 give you one more bit of science, and then I'm going to switch to more of the politics of it. So it is, I think, not an overclaim to say that this could be done to stop warming. And it could be done cheaply. So the world's been negotiating about how to get the 1.5 commitment of Paris. You could use this. But that doesn't mean it's a good idea at all. Because what matters is not global average temperature, but the extent to which local climate changes, local changes in extreme precipitation, or, 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 or moisture availability, or uh, extreme storms, how much that doing this actually reduces the impact of those things. And it's perfectly possible to reduce the global average temperature, but you know this is being flipped, but make half the world 10 degrees colder and half 10 degrees warmer, and that would obviously be bad for everybody. So, so, so the point is, just the, the, the statement that it does global average temperature doesn't tell you it's a good idea. What you need to do is run good climate models and, and really try and understand what the impact of doing it would be. So I'll show you some relatively new stuff. I'm going to skip some things. Um, I'll show you first some slides. These would be the most technical slides, probably. Um, so, so this is, I'll show you some results from a, a state-of-the-art climate model. It's very... Um, uh, very computationally expensive that the geophysical fluid dynamics lab runs. And this model actually does tropical storms, hurricanes, uh, from first principles pretty well. They're not hand-coded. It really does them right up to kind of category five hurricanes and, and gets a pretty good version of the current climate distribution of, 
of hurricanes, which is quite amazing. Climate models couldn't do that 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and I won't go into the details, but it does a much better job of getting North American precipitation, this extreme precipitation in the US. And this is the upper left is what the observations are, which is what extreme distribution of extreme precip events are in the US today. This is the maximum one year returning event for extreme precip. And this is what a low resolution climate model does, which is pretty lousy. And this is what the fancy model does, which is kind of nice. Um, so what I'll show you, uh, uh, really two key technical slides. What this is, is in each case, I'm showing you two times CO2 minus control is basically the amount things have changed when you do uh, uh, increasing CO2. So let's just take SAT as surface air temperature. So what this is showing you is, is that if you look at all the land-based grid points in this model, and this is the distribution of the change in surface air temperature. So maybe you may have heard that if you double CO2 in the atmosphere, you warm the overall climate up by a couple degrees centigrade. That's the number you see here. But this shows you the distribution. So this is saying you that something like 1%, the worst, the, the, the worst one percentile is actually warming up sort of four and a half degrees centigrade, which for a global average change, for an annual average change is huge change in climate. And then the, you know, the, the lowest one percent is here. So this is the distribution. This is, this is when you just do two times CO2. And then the blue is when you do two times CO2 and you do enough solar geoengineering to cut average temperatures in half. So of course, the average or the median here is half as big as this one. But what's not obvious, so I, I told you something about the average, but what you also see is that the range is reduced a whole lot. The extremes are reduced a lot. And that's true for surface air temperature, but this is surface air temperature worst hour over a year. This is the absolute max over a year. And that's probably a much better measure of a lot of human impacts. So if you think about the big uh, uh, heat waves that have really killed people in Asia, uh, uh, this is a good measure of that. And you can see that, that, that solar geoengineering really reduces peak temperatures a lot. Uh, this is precipitation minus evaporation, which is basically the amount of water available for agriculture or for, for ecosystems. And again, solar geoengineering pushes things back to pre-industrial. So that really appears to be true for every one of the major climate variables. The last one is extreme storms or basically five-day maximum precip. And that's surprising. And we've also looked at what it looks like regionally. So I'll show you one complicated to interpret map, and then I'm gonna kind of go back to more, more general conversation. So this divides up the world into a bunch of these standard regions that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, uses a lot. And in each of these, first of all, there's these four symbols, temperature, extreme temperature, water availability, extreme storms. That's what the symbols mean. And then uh, if moderated means you move things back towards pre-industrial and red exacerbated means you move them further away. That is basically, these are the winners, if you like, and these are the losers under geoengineering. And then there's significant and not significant. Is this, is this statistically significant or not? And you'll see that if you look across all of these, there is no place where any of those four letters is red. There's some places where they're pink, right here is maybe the only one, uh, meaning that there's a statistically insignificant change but none of them are red. And that's amazing, because if you look at the main kind of popular literature on solar geoengineering, it's all filled with ideas that there's gonna be big losers, that India will be much worse off, the monsoons will fail, for example. And yet the actual data shows that, at least for this climate model, and for, it turns out, a bunch of other climate models, almost every region, uh, or every region, seems to be made better off. That may or may not actually be true, we don't know. But it is what a state-of-the-art model says. Good question, and, and, and this one, good question. In this one is actually, we do these models in different ways. In this model, there's no aerosols, we just turn down the sun. We adjusted the solar constant in the model. 
We've done lots of models where you do do aerosols, and we've combined them in different ways, but in this model, the aerosols are faked. Yep? Good question. Um, I think I want to, um, the answer is, there's a whole separate study that we and some other group at MIT have done, and the answer is very small compared to the health effects of current aerosols. And in general, the main impact isn't the aerosols at all. It's the um, changes in climate on the ground which change. It's a complicated story. Very small, and I'm happy to, to say more and give you a paper. Yeah. So the main suggestion to date has been to use uh, sulfate or sulfuric acid. And to give you a sense of, I guess, to give you some simple number, one of the reasons why it's not as big as you expect is the amount is relatively small. So humans right now put 50 million tons a year of sulfur in the lower atmosphere from air pollution. And that does kill something like a million people a year. Um, for solar geoengineering, you'd need to put something like 5 million tons, so 10 times less in the stratosphere. And then it comes down evenly everywhere, and it turns out it's rained out very effectively. So the contribution to lower to ground level aerosol is very small. But, but that, is, that is the main idea. There have been a bunch of others. Yep? No. Yep. Yes, you will change the jet stream, but you'll change it back towards pre-industrial, which is precisely the point. That is the whole point of doing this is to push the climate back towards pre-industrial. And you do see the jet, which responds to the pole to equator temperature gradient, goes back towards pre-industrial. And I haven't looked so much at ocean currents, but, but they're basically driven by surface winds, and more or less you'd expect the same thing. Not perfectly, but that's the idea. So of course the point is to make a change, but it's to push it back towards the pre-industrial. Yep? No, this, is, this, is, this model is purely a climate model. There are lots of other economic models, but this model is just a climate model. So you assume that there's no dark figures that also contribute to the So this model is just looking at the simple case of, of to what extent, the way to think about this model is to what extent small amounts of solar geoengineering, what the distribution of benefits and costs are. Basically, which parts of the world are being pushed a little closer to pre-industrial versus further away, and it looks like almost everywhere is getting pushed closer. The hard political questions are all about how we use it. I think I want to get to that in a second. So I'm, I'm actually going to skip ahead a bunch and, and talk about sort of thinking about how this might play out, how it might get used. I don't know why I don't have this thing working. Let's try one more time. Hmm. Oh, well. Um, so start with no units. This is the sort of simplest conceptual question about how this might fit into climate policy. So first of all, if we just do fossil fuels forever, uh, the climate risks just go up. That's kind of what I told you before. It's cumulative emissions. So if we're just putting in fossil fuels, things just get worse. If you bring emissions to zero, what you do is you stop making it worse, and then it gets better very, very slowly. There's no, at this point, no units. But you can just think of this is the point where we brought emissions to zero. So whether that's 2050 or 2075, you call it then it's also possible to remove carbon from the atmosphere. That's a whole other thing that you could look at as a form of geoengineering. And there's no question it's possible to do, but there's no quick version of it. It's inherently relatively slow and expensive because you've got to deal with all the carbon that's in the atmosphere. It does allow humans a way to gradually bring the risk back towards zero, but I think realistically over a century or more. 
So the main way, at least I, there's no right answer here, because there's no value-free, technically right answer. But the main reason that I and many other, the main way in which I and many other people think about using these technologies is basically to cut the top off. And in practice, you wouldn't do it that evenly, but, but to say that you'd, uh, that some combination of cutting emissions to zero, doing carbon removal to gradually go, go down the other side, and then doing solar geoengineering to limit the worst effect, that some combination of those three things might give you less overall climate risk than cutting emissions alone. That's really the key. So to come back to what I said earlier on, no one who's sensible is saying that solar geoengineering is a way to avoid emissions cuts. But it may be that combining it with emissions cuts and carbon removal gets you overall a substantially lower level of climate risk than not doing it. Yep? So, so I get that. So, so the answer is no. We do not know enough about climate science to know for sure what will happen. But that doesn't help decide the question because it's a risk-to-risk -risk question. So we don't know precisely how much risk there is of having, say, 500 parts per million of CO2 in 2050. We don't know exactly what the risks of that are. And the worst case is that it actually tips West Antarctica to really melting and you know, commits you to five meters of sea level rise. So we don't know that for sure. And we also don't know for sure what happens when we do solar geoengineering. We can do our best estimates, but there will always be lots of uncertainty. So the issue is choosing, choosing between risks. So we have two states in the world we can choose, one with 500 parts per million, let's say CO2, and one with 500 ppm CO2 and some solar geoengineering. And the question is, which is less risky? They're both uncertain, they're both risky, but we don't get the choice to have no extra CO2. We lost the chance to make that choice back when we started the fossil fuel era. Yep? Lots of people look at the idea of planting more trees in some deep way it doesn't get at the problem. The reason I started at the beginning with the idea that the problem was driven by taking carbon from the geosphere, from deep underground to the surface biosphere, is to deliberately kind of break you free from the tree planting idea. What trees do, and any other agricultural stuff, is they, they change the partitioning between the, um, the, the atmosphere and the surface biosphere. And that's a pretty short-term thing that varies in less than a century. And as you saw, the cumulatively what's happened in the, since 1870 is basically nil. So it's very, very hard to move total carbon by planting trees. And trees are dark. No, no, the, the, so that means, that if you plant trees over a lot of the northern hemisphere, you actually make the problem worse. Well, just let me understand. So when I was yep. talking to you about the trees planting the trees, I'm not talking about trees without oxygen. No, of course it's true. You can't accumulate that much carbon. So no, of course, trees, of course, trees fix carbon. That's what they're made out of. Yeah. So there's no question about that. But 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 the only way, but then trees rot. They fall down and rot. And then the carbon goes back in the atmosphere. So the only way you could use trees at really large scale to remove carbon from the atmosphere is something called biomass with carbon capture and sequestration. So you could take the trees, feed them into a power plant, capture the CO2, shove it back underground. Then you've really taken carbon back from the active biosphere and put it underground. Or you could bury the trees in huge negative tree mines, 
There are lots of papers about this. But just leaving trees in forests, forests in the net, in a, a long-run stable forest doesn't remove CO2 from the atmosphere. The trees remove it each year, but then they fall and die. That helping? Yeah, it's, OK. Well, I mean, I mean, you don't have an infinite amount of soil. If, if the thing. Yes, so if you could make enough stable products, that could be useful. But the problem is the flux of carbon in the house building turns out to be really tiny compared to emissions. Yep. Yep. Tree, trees aren't bad for us, but, but trees aren't bad for us, but growing trees, pardon? So there's fires too. So, so we know something about the natural lifetime of carbon in forests. We can go measure. I mean, one of the nice things is we have radiocarbon dating. So you can easily go figure out how old the carbon is in the trees, in the litter, in the soil. And you can ask what the turnover of carbon is. And there's, you know, this is a thing biologists have studied forever. And we actually know a great deal about what, how different kinds of forests have different average carbon lifetimes. But the broad answer is that uh, uh, you don't, I think, I mean, this is, there's some things I'm saying that are quite controversial, but basically nobody in this business thinks that really, that you can make a really big change in that total atmospheric stock of carbon by altering land biosphere. And, and part of the reason is that as you warm it up, those trees are basically like you, you made a, 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 a those, as you warm it up, fires and, and, and ecological change are more likely. So that carbon you put in early in the century may come out late in the century. You can't protect it so well. So if you really want to remove carbon back to the deep biosphere, you need to do something other than leave the tree there. You need to make a, a tree farm and bury it. Yes. And then also, um, the EJ collapse. There's something about trees being more reactive to like reaction to hot and cold resources and more fires, and that's how we try to protect it from clearing the flux. Yes, and yes. Yes, I don't want to go too much further. I'm happy to do this in conversation. So, yes, and yes. I mean, but, but, but big, I mean, just to go back to this picture, um, I mean, there's lots of things that are uncertain here, but these numbers are not very uncertain. And the point is, a lot of things happened to the stock of trees between 1870 and now. So, so the US was dominantly wood powered until 1900. We had fossil fuels, but we were most of our economy was wood powered until 1900. All the trees in eastern New England basically were cut down. That's why when you go out here in the forest, you'll see beautiful stone fences through the trees because that was all farmland that's regrown. So there's huge changes in carbon stock sort of on a local basis. And yet the net effect was basically a nil. And, 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 and quite small compared to this. And this is only the change from 1870 till now. But at the rate that we're burning fossil fuels now, the change in the next half century is that big again. So the, the whole change from, from trees is just not so big. Let me try and get back to one last. So let me get back to something related to trees. An obvious question people ask about solar geoengineering is, people say it doesn't do anything about the carbon problem, and including about trees. That is, it, 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 it doesn't deal with the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere. 
So the big picture answer is yes. That is, it doesn't. The big picture answer is there's no one solution, and cutting emissions does stop the buildup of CO2 in the atmosphere, but it doesn't reduce it. Solar geoengineering may reduce some of the climate risks, but it doesn't fundamentally deal with the carbon problem. And removing carbon deals with, with some of the carbon problem, but it's really slow and expensive. But in fact, solar geoengineering does help with the carbon problem, and here's why. So help with, but not solve the problem. Carbon emissions means more carbon in the atmosphere. You knew that. That makes it warmer. And when it's warmer, there's less carbon absorbed by the ocean and more carbon released, say, from permafrost and, and, and forest fires and so on. And so that's all card called carbon cycle feedbacks. That's in all the standard, I mean, widely accepted kind of all the standard climate system models. And what this means is for a given human emissions from fossil fuels over the century, there's more CO2 at the end of the century in the atmosphere than just from our fossil fuels because we've actually pushed the biosphere to a place where there's less carbon. The, the warming has done that, quite separate from any changes in tree planting. So if you do the same thing, but you do solar geoengineering and, and slow down the warming, so you have the same carbon emissions, but not as much warming, it turns out that you actually have less carbon in the atmosphere at the end of the century, because for example, you've stopped permafrost melting. And that's quite a big effect. So in, in round numbers, solar geoengineering might reduce the CO2 burden at the end of the century by something like 20%. Doesn't solve the problem, but actually does push it in the right way. So it reduces ocean acidification, and it reduces uh, uh, the total carbon buildup. So that gives you some sense of the kind of complicated way these things are connected. So my view, at least, is we need quite a few different things to manage this complicated problem. Yep? Yeah. Um, what are the ideas behind what are the technologies that go into that? It's kind of a two part question. Like the current technologies that we have to make yep. uh, carbon reductible, but we're living in an exponential age right now. So we say 10 minutes an hour, 5 minutes an hour, but not actually actually more carbon intensive. Fair enough. Let, let, me, um, let me actually let, let's hold that. Okay, because I actually, I, I, in fact, I'm involved in a startup company that does that. So I could, I could say plenty about it, but let me, let me start with, let me end with this slide on solar geoengineering. The big debate now is not whether or not we should do solar geoengineering. I think nobody who's sensible is advocating doing this now. The big question is, should we have a serious research program? Should we really study it? Or would it be better to have a taboo where we just say it's off limits, nobody's allowed to talk about it? My view is obviously we should have a research program, and I want to give you some sense of how I think about the trade-offs. So from my point of view, if we start a serious research program, by which I mean something that is international, open access, that a broadly distributed research program that maybe ends up amounting to a few percent of the current total climate change science research budget, which in the US is like three billion. So if, um, if that happens, then we'll learn more. We might learn that people like me were over-optimistic. And that, that we might learn there were some fundamental mistakes in that climate model result I showed you. And that the thing really doesn't work as well as, say, I now think maybe it does. That's part of the point of research is you learn more. And if so, nothing's changed except this very small amount of money has been spent. We might learn that actually it works pretty well, maybe better than we think now. 
In which case, we still get to make the decision about what to do, but we get to make a more informed decision about what to do. We get to make a sort of informed deployment decision, and then all the hard politics is still there. The politics of this decision is hard and will stay hard. If we have no research program, that doesn't make deployment go away. The fact is there are countries, especially some of the poorer countries in the world, that will face real threats from climate change in the next, say, quarter century. And many of them actually have the financial resources to do this. So whether or not the US decides to do it, the, the questions about whether some country will get serious about doing it are very real. And the conversations about this feel quite different in Philippines or China, Indonesia, and they do, uh, or India, than they do here. And, and if we have no research program, then I don't think we get out of the question of whether or not it, this gets done. I think we just make a decision in bigger ignorance. And my fundamental argument is that we ought to have a serious research program for solar geoengineering. And, and that doesn't mean that we know it will work. We don't. But it means there's enough evidence, where the most important evidence is the kind of climate model results I was showing you, that it could dramatically reduce climate risk that's worth taking it seriously. So that's, I, I'm happy to try and answer that question. We're basically at the end of an hour, but we end up with questions all through, which I'm very happy with. Um, um, how much more time realistically do we want? Okay, so um, carbon removal, as it's often called, has also been a bit of a taboo subject. And, and there's been almost no research budget. So the UK, for example, just authorized a tiny, like one million pound research budget for one particular interesting set of ideas for carbon removal called, called uh, alkalinity addition. And that's one of the few research projects like that in the world. Uh, uh, there's one particular set of technologies, which is the idea that you could make an industrial machine to directly capture CO2 out of the atmosphere and make concentrated CO2. And so there are a couple companies pursuing that seriously, one of which I founded. So that's called carbon engineering. The other big one is called Climeworks. They're both still tiny startups, but they're not tiny, tiny. Like we're sort of 40 employees and they're maybe 60 or so. Uh, and, and the central market that we at Carbon Engineering, which is completely unrelated to my academic work, and it's based in, in British Columbia, Canada, the central thing we at Carbon Engineering are, are driving for is actually not large-scale removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. It's using cheap solar power to combine with CO2 and make fuels. So we basically make low-carbon or carbon-neutral fuels to save power aircraft uh, uh, under a carbon constraint, uh, um, um, under carbon constraints in a way that competes with other ways to make low carbon fuels. One way to think about it is we do the same thing that biofuels do, as we take sunlight and CO2 out of the atmosphere and make fuel, but we do it with about 30 times less land than biofuels. So with a much smaller constraint and an industrial process. And there's certainly ways that it could get cheaper, but I think there's some industrial processes that get cheap very slowly. So this gentleman, I'll just finish on that, said we live in an exponential age. That feels true if you're in the IT industry, but if you look at a whole bunch of the basic industrial processes that actually run the planet, like the Haber-Bosch process that feeds you all, that's the biggest single change in the human, sort of human's relationship with the natural world, it hasn't changed much in 40 years. You look at a bunch of the core ways we make metals or minerals or, or a bunch of, of those sort of deep industrial processes, they change very, very slowly. Uh, uh, I have a question about carbon credits. Okay. Sure. Um, I was interested to hear how we're going to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, what are we doing for our offsetting carbon, carbon credits? 
With the current carbon credit system, like yeah. you, when, when you're flying your airplane, you get to check the box? So, so I think, I mean, to, to say something a bit incendiary, I think mostly what you're paying for is if you say you want to make your flight carbon neutral, is you're paying for something a bit like what the Catholic Church used to give you when they offered you an indulgence, where if you, <laughs> if you do a sin, then you could pay to have your sin wiped away. So, so there's no realistic way. So the, the, that, that voluntary carbon market is like at a couple bucks a ton. I think there's no realistic way you're actually buying permanent Ne negative emissions at a couple bucks a ton. Yeah, I, I think I think what you're what you're buying, some of that money may go to somewhere useful. Just as maybe some of the money was paid for indulgences went to useful things for the Catholic Church, but but it's not magically solving that problem. I would say, I think the more realistic costs are like a hundred bucks a ton. Uh, I don't know, maybe somebody else. Sure. Yeah. Got it. So, so that exactly. So I think you answered your own question. So, so no. So 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 I don't. I I think that in some things, like when we're competing to make better solar power, I was talking with you earlier about wind power. I think capitalism is great. When you've got a relatively clear idea of what you want, then a market economy can work very well. For a thing like this, we don't need solar generation to be cheaper. It's already too cheap. If anything, the cheapness is sort of more a bug than a feature, because any country could do it. The issue about solar geoengineering is all to get more transparency about what the risks are. And, and, uh, and companies inevitably oversell a little bit. Like each company wants to say all the good things. So I think that in my view, I'd like to see very little private sector involvement or close to none in the core of solar geoengineering. I think it's important to be done as much as possible by a range of different uh, organizations that have high levels of transparency and have sort of minimal level of self-interest. And there's no, there's no perfection. I mean, we all know that there's self-interest and problems everywhere. But well, let's, let's separate too many problems. Let's, let's not, let's, too many conversations at once. One, one question per customer. But, but I think the answer is, for solar geoengineering, from my point of view, the right way is to have research that's, that's run by a combination of private philanthropies and governments with a pretty high level of transparency. So not something that's really run as a for-profit thing. And I think in the end, the governments need to be making decisions about how much we dim the sun. I don't, I don't think you want private companies figuring out how to dim the sun. And um, to jump in here, we have time for here? one more question. OK, have it right here. Mm, um, that, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, uh, let me answer in two different ways. I, I, think, I think there's a certain level of basic information about how the energy system works and, and, and some really basic stuff about the climate system that somehow we're not doing a very good job of. So I've had kids go through teenage years, and you tend to get a whole lot of kind of very high-level information, but not the basics. So most people, most citizens, can't give you kind of very coherent story about what happens when you turn on the light bulb. Like just what's upstream, the basics of how the power system works, some really basics of the economics of it. And I think uh, that's something you actually can, a high schooler can easily understand. And it's pretty relevant to being in a democracy and making decisions about it. And I think we need to do that better. And I think um, 
the issue you mentioned, sort of carbon footprints of food, that's something that is um, actually really hard to calculate accurately and filled with disputes. So many people really believe that somehow a local diet, the 100-mile diet, is a lower impact. The evidence for that is weaker. In fact, mostly goes the other direction. So, so it turns out there's big economies of scale so that larger California farms, for example, can produce lettuces at a much lower uh, energy and, in some respects, environmental cost per lettuce than a, a little local farm here. And transportation is very cheap, even in energy terms. So, so um, it's complicated is the answer. But, but I think you know, we need to do more of this. But I think at, at a kind of high school level, we need, we need sometimes less complicated theory and more kind of simple stories about how the energy system works and what the real trade-offs are. That's our show for the week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast. Don't forget, for more information about the Ivy community and to find out about live events happening near you, visit ivy.com. That's I-V-Y dot com. See you next time.